Catherine, can I again uh, add to the welcome that Norman gave you at the beginning of the service? It's good to see you all here on such a drich day. If you don't know what that means, ask someone from Scotland. It's one of the few words that I've learnt in my 12 years here. Actually, I came in early this morning. I often like to get in early, just spend a final moment in thought and preparation. And I stood at the bus stop as the rain was pouring down and out came a couple, all dressed up in hiking gear, probably in their 30s. And I said to the man, pretty poor day. And he said, oh, it could be worse, it could be snowing. Um, And as we stood there, I sat on the bus and I thought to myself two things really. I thought, amazing that on such a day like this, people want to go hiking in the mountains, that people are passionate about it. And yet many Christians... The weather or and a competing attraction is uh, often takes precedence. The other thing I thought was how much warmer and better off they'd be sitting in a place like this and what a great privilege we have to come together and to hear God's word. Now we break into our normal series in Mark's Gospel. We're reading from a psalm this morning and focusing on that. We'll help to have a Bible. There are Bibles around. If you can, can't see one, just reach around or ask someone to pass you one. And our theme today is our greatest need and uh, I want to focus particularly on a verse in Psalm 85. You'll find that on page 595, 595 in the Pew Bibles. It's working okay. We're still trying out this new microphone so I hope it's more effective. It seems to be anyway. Psalm 85. You showed favour to your land, O Lord, You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. Restore us again, O God our Saviour, and put away your displeasure towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. I will listen to what the Lord will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints, but let them not return to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. This is God's word. Let's just bow in prayer and ask God to speak to us through it. Lord God, on this our anniversary Sunday, we pray again that in your mercy you might look down upon us, you might speak to us from your living word and through your Son who is your final and last and greatest word to our world. May we be alert and eager to hear what you say to us and just as eager and alert to respond to it. In Jesus' name. Amen.
On this, our 196th anniversary, I want to ask a question. What is our greatest need as a church? If you're a visitor from another church, I'm sure you can transfer what I'm saying to your own particular fellowship as you return home. But I particularly address this to those who are either members here who would regard this as their church, whether you're in formal membership or not. If the Lord were to stand among us here this morning and grant us one wish as a fellowship, what would we ask for? If you went around the churches in Scotland, indeed almost every church in Britain, and asked them, what is your greatest need? What would you like the Lord to do for you? Then almost all of them would say, the bottom line would be, more people, more converts. The church in the United Kingdom is sadly in decline with falling roles, dwindling congregations. All the surveys show this very clearly. For example, the survey done of England recently, which applies to Scotland, which is slightly better, written by Peter Brearley, the director of the Christian Research Organisation, is entitled, The Tide is Running Out. So churches long that the tide might turn. That as they look around, the pews might be filled with new people. And a century ago, a hundred years ago, at the start of the 20th century, that was a situation in this church. The congregation was down to, the active congregation was down to 35 people. The church had received a handsome financial offer for this site and for the building that stood here to turn it into a repository for furniture. It seemed a sensible option to accept. The church appeared to be on its last legs. However, a handful of people in the church, led by the then church secretary, Andrew Urquhart by name, thought otherwise. And he gathered together the small remaining band of worshippers and here's what he said, and I kindly quote from a preview of the history of the chapel written by our honorary elder, Ian Balfour, which is being prepared for our bicentenary, the Lord tarries in 2008, and makes fascinating reading. Here is what he says, and I'm going to quote something of what he said. The language is slightly old-fashioned, but it, you'll understand it. He said, I believe the crisis that they're facing is of God, and he will bring us through it. God, I'm sure, is a great work for us to do in this place souls to save and sanctify, men and women to train and fit for the duties and work of life. My message to you, therefore, is stand still and see the salvation of God, standing loyally by God's work here, cheering and helping each other, doing heartily the work, lying to our hand, praying and waiting confidently for the manifestation of His will. I think he said that around 1901, maybe the beginning of 1902. And the rest, as they say, is history. For those who don't know the history of this church, those who do will be encouraged to hear it again. Let me tell you, very briefly. They called a new pastor, a man called Joseph Kemp, who accepted the call to the chapel. He renovated the building and called this small band of people together to prayer. And the result followed that the church gradually began to grow. In 1905, Joseph Kemp wasn't very well, so the elders in their wisdom sent him off for a break in Bournemouth, down in England. He said after one day he got depressed by the bath chairs and invalids, and therefore moved west 
and determined to visit Wales where there was a remarkable revival taking place in 1905. He was so impressed he brought back the fires of revival with him and a Welshman called Mr. Thomas who reported what they had heard to the church. And a remarkable revival followed. Mr. Moving story. Sorry. 1,000 people converted in one year. The next year it touched again. Another 1,000 people added to the church. This building, the existing building that then stood, was no longer able to seek the congregation. And so, as we've done with Nidra, they had a building appeal. It took them five years to raise the capital. But in 1912, this building was finally erected. It seats around 900 people. If you look around you, you're supposed to get six, seven in the side pews and 13 in the middle pews. I suspect people have got rather larger over the years. And it's more like 12 and 6 now. But this building has been consistently filled for 88 years, Sunday by Sunday. Sometimes so much, so if you read the stories, the kids have to sit on the stairs of the pews. The fire officer would have something to say. Now, I've related this story not to evoke nostalgia or even to challenge and encourage us, though it should do that. No, I come back to my original question. What is our greatest need? If the greatest need of most churches is the pews are filled, that is not our prayer. There aren't many empty seats. So while a full church should be a focus for praise, what is our petition? What do we want God to do? What is our greatest need? Now, you will discover what a person's greatest need is. Do you know how you will discover what a Christian's greatest need is? Listen to what they pray for and how they pray for it. How important it is to them. Want to discover what a church's greatest need is? Listen to what the congregation pray for and how they pray. The danger with a, with a full church, the greatest blessing in Charlotte Chapel is that we have a full church. The greatest danger in Charlotte Chapel is that we have a full church. Because we settle for that. And therefore we don't have any great urgency in prayer. So, while probably around a thousand different people will pass through this church morning and evening, or in total, different people, during an average Sunday. Uh, last uh, Tuesday we met congregationally for our, our weekly congregational prayer meeting, particularly focusing on praying for our students and youth program. The fantastic presentation, PowerPoint in the works, there were, I counted, there were little more than 40 people present. And I would suggest to you that part of the reason is, and I know we all have good reasons, I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip on you because you had something important on that evening. I simply say, or ask you to consider that our prayer life suggests that we think we have no great or pressing need. And I would certainly say that if this is the case, then like the new, we are in great danger like the New Testament church in Laodicea, which was a church like Charlotte Chapel. It was full of people. It was rich and wealthy. And they said, I do not need a thing. And the Lord said, you're wrong. So, what is our greatest need? I thought and reflected on it. simply want to leave you with a verse 
and then reflect on the psalm itself. And the verse is Psalm 85, verse 6, and I want you to think about it carefully. And at the end, I want to suggest that you might want to use it as a prayer, or that we might want to use it as a prayer together. Here's the, here's the verse. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Now, let me try and focus on three things, and if you don't like alliteration, some people find it helpful. Just ignore that. It's the content that matters. Okay. Here's the first thing that I see in this psalm. The first word, it is this. Dissatisfaction. You see it in the psalm? In the verse? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Notice two reasons why the psalmist is dissatisfied and distressed. Here is the first one. He is aware of God's present attitude to his people. You'll see that in verses 4 and 5. Now, if you know someone really well, a family member, if you are married, you are or should be sensitive to one another and how you're feeling. In fact, I go as far as to say that if you're married, you sometimes don't need to say anything. You just look at the person's face and say, what's wrong? What's happened? Or, what's wrong? What's happened? good. Only a person who is insensitive and self-absorbed will fail to spot these signs. Or a person who you meet for the first time and you don't really know them very well maybe and you can't spot what the signals mean. I look around this congregation, I'm not sure about some of you, where you're, whether you're with me at the moment, some of you I know well and are listening and smiling, others I think, well, maybe they're not with me, I don't know. Now, what is true about our relationship with one another should be true even more so of our relationship with the God that we know if we are Christians. Because when you become a Christian, something happens. God brings you into his family. Not only that, he gives you his spirit. His spirit comes to live within you, his Holy Spirit. And if I can put it without a lack of, without being irreverent, the Holy Spirit is a sensitive person. writing, you remember what Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus. He said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Ephesians 5 verse 30 I think it is, 4.30 actually. And he, and he describes the kind of behaviour that grieves God. And rather he tells them in the next chapter he says, instead he says, find out what pleases the Lord. What are the kind of things that you can do that, w-? again, I'm using human terms, Find out the kind of things you can do that will make God happy. That will bring Him joy. That's your goal if you're a Christian. To avoid grieving the Spirit. And to find out what pleases God. And what is worrying. The greatest worrying sign for a Christian is when we become desensitized to what the Holy Spirit is saying to us. And the more you sin, the more insensitive you become. And that is true of a church. And the great danger today, in fact, it was an opposite danger in times past, but the greatest danger today, I think, for Christians, is that we so focus on God's love that we think we can do what we like, we can sin with impunity, it doesn't really matter because God will forgive us anyway. So, let me ask you a question. It's a theological question, all right, but I'll put it in simple terms. Do you believe God is ever angry? Do you believe that God is ever angry with a Christian? 
Do you believe if you do something that God is ever angry about it? The writer in this psalm is in no doubt that God is angry with his people. But what he says? He's a God of wrath who displays fierce anger. Verse 3. He's a God who shows displeasure towards his people. Verse 4. And he's angry with them. Verse 5. So much so, the psalmist wonders if God will ever relent. Now, of course, some Christians try to get round this by saying, oh, well, the Old Testament is a God of wrath and anger. And in the New Testament, you find a God who is a God of love and rubbish. The God and Father of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and the psalmist is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the same God. Character didn't suddenly switch over. In fact, I would suggest to you in the New Testament, his love is shown to its fullest extent. Then if we spurn his love, his anger is shown to a greater extent. It's wrong. Don't have time to talk about it. Remember what our Lord said? We're more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah those who don't believe the gospel and our difficulties with God's anger stay with me because it's important arises because of two misconceptions the first is that we imagine God's anger is like human anger you know that he suddenly flies off the handle in an irrational way out of all proportion with what you've done God's anger, God's wrath, the Bible calls it, to be more specific, is not like that. God's anger is his fully justified response to all that is evil and wrong, which is totally consistent with his character as a holy God. But the other misconception is that God's anger and God's love are mutually incompatible. That is, if God is angry with you, he cannot love you. Now, just stop for a moment in human terms and ask, say to yourself, that's, that's wrong in human terms. There was a case in the paper some months ago. I was looking through all my files. I'm always ripping out bits of papers and sticking them in my file, which is getting bigger and bigger. And I couldn't find it, but it was about a woman from Scotland whose daughter had been caught smuggling drugs. I think it was in Thailand. And they interviewed her on the television and said, what do you feel about this? She said, I just wish if I saw her, I would give her a good hiding. And then I'd throw my arms around her and tell her how much I loved her. Surely it's the same with God except that his wrath and anger are never out of proportion. So the psalmist is alarmed, he's dissatisfied about the way things are because he's aware of God's present attitude to his people. But he's also dissatisfied, notice the second thing, he's also dissatisfied because he looks back and sees this is in such marked contrast with what God did in the past. He is aware of God's past actions towards his people. That's where the psalm begins, look what he says. He looks back, he recalls God's favour and forgiveness to his people in the past. Verse 1, you showed favour to our, your land, O Lord, you restored the fortunes of Zion, the fortunes of Jacob. When you're reading the Old Testament, it's very significant. I always note where it says Jacob and where it says Israel. You know, Norman read Psalm 46, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Jake, when it says Jacob, be encouraged because Jacob is the name given to the ancestor of Israel means twister or cheat and he was a complete rogue and God turned him around and showed him his favour and forgiveness and that's true of his people Israel it's true of his New Testament people and so he says you forgave the iniquity of your people you covered all their sins you set aside your wrath turned from your fierce anger he says God in the past was justifiably angry with his people 
because of their iniquity and sins, yet he forgave them. And we too should be dissatisfied by looking back and seeing what God did in the past. But notice that he does not leave us there. This is not a nostalgic psalm in which people wallow about the past, you know, and wish things were like that again. No, it gives us hope and confidence. This is why the psalmist begins there, because he's, he's, as it were, reasoning with God and saying, Lord, I know you're really angry with us. I know you're really upset with us. Maybe you feel that this morning. God is angry with you. Maybe this morning you never realised it and suddenly God the Holy Spirit has brought you up short and brought things to your mind that you wish you'd never done even this past week. And you suddenly realise God is angry with you. What are you going to do about it? Well, this psalm is a great encouragement. The psalmist says, Lord, I know you're really angry with us and I know it's justified and right, but Lord, I look back in the past. You remember, Lord, your people did this in the past and you forgave them. Will you be angry with us forever? Gives him hope. Before Joseph Kemp was called to Charlotte Chapel, there, there's an incident that I think he was in a meeting of ministers, probably in the, in the building, in Charlotte Chapel building, and he was heard to say the words, God, God pity the man who comes here. And then he got a call to Charlotte Chapel and accepted it. Why? Because he knew that God would have pity if he called him. That God would do what he promised and restore what seemed to be a lost cause very sad fact that most Christians today have very little knowledge of the Old Testament, let alone church history, the history of God's people. It's always a great encouragement to read what God has done in the past. In seemingly hopeless causes, he's turned things around. And it is because he is assured of God's love that the psalmist can turn from his dissatisfaction and plead with God to turn aside from his anger and restore and revive his people as he has done in the past. So, from dissatisfaction, notice the second theme in this psalm, the word desperation. It's not a half-hearted psalm or prayer. It's not limited in its passion or scope. After asking God to remove his anger, to restore his people, he's still not satisfied. More is needed. And what is needed is something that only God can do. Notice what he prays. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? You see, the word revive here means to give life or to restore something to life. It's kind of like to give the kiss of spiritual life. If that makes sense to you. Something which is about to die. And this is something only God can do. God created human beings. He breathed the breath of life into them. We read in the book of Genesis. But life is more than physical body. God gave them spiritual life. A relationship with Him. More than the animation of the body. And when the psalmist wrote this psalm, the nation of Israel was, we're not quite sure when it was written, but the nation of Israel was still in existence. The people were physically alive. No doubt they were going through all the motions of religious life. But the psalmist sees that as far as God is concerned, it's all a show and they are spiritually dead or dying. They need the kiss of life and this is something only God can do. Not just physical life, but spiritual life. We don't have time to look at it, but remember the famous story in the book of Ezekiel. It's the only one that most people know. The story of the valley of dry bones. And the Lord takes the prophet and he says, look, there's a valley full of dried bones, skeletons. And he says, can these bones live? And he says, Lord, you only... Son of man, can these bones live? And he said, Lord, you only know. And the Lord says, speak to them, my word. And flesh and bone, flesh comes on the bones. And they're now corpses, not bones. But it's not enough. The bodies need to be animated in order to stand and to become a great army. And so God breathes the breath of His Spirit, His life, and they stand upon their feet. 
Now it is not just enough for a church to have all the structures in place with activities and a busy programme. Unless this is animated by God's Spirit, then it is little more than dry bones. And the great problem in a church is that you can fail to notice that because the, mo- the structures just continue. E.W. Tozer, the American pastor and preacher, famously commented in the mid-1950s, I think it would be, that in most churches in America, the Holy Spirit could be withdrawn and the members would continue and not notice the difference. Is anything different in Britain today? In every generation, we need a fresh work of God's Spirit. And unless we do, the, the spiritual life of a church will dilute down the generations. If you remember Charlotte Chapel and your father and grandfather remembers. Ask yourself, oh, it's a hard question to answer, but ask the Lord. Am I the spiritual man that my father was, my grandfather was, my great-grandfather, some of you? Or has it just become diluted down the generations? Now, there's nothing wrong with structure and programs. You, you, need, you need flesh on the bones. But unless they're animated by God's Spirit, we're simply maintaining a structure. We need God's Spirit in every generation. Our God could have created us as robots, but He made us living beings and we're free to choose and follow Him. And on this church anniversary, I ask you and ask myself, I've been here 12 years, I'm as much responsible, more responsible than any of you. Is that true of us in Charlotte Chapel? Have we settled for the status quo? The great danger with the full church is that you look around and think, listen, we're doing better than most people. And we get involved in the numbers game. Really. One of our members once related an incident from the minister, ministry of our former pastor, Alan Redpath, who was only here four years, a very short but powerful ministry that searched many people's lives. And he said, after another half night of prayer, he said to him, Pastor, when will you be satisfied? And he said, Never! So, are we satisfied with the status quo? If we are not, it will be marked by a note of desperation which is seen when God's people come together to pray. Seeking that God may revive us again. Now, when God's people pray like that, what is the result? Well, you might say the result will be that more people get converted. I would suggest to you that's the end product. There is something else before that which leads to more people getting converted. When God's people pray that he might revive them, then the work begins with them. So let me suggest a third word which might help us. Summarising his priority, the word devotion. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? The first mark of a revived people is seen in their devotion to God, in their love for him that they find their joy in Him. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 4, judgment begins with the house of God. But blessing begins with a revived house of God. Think of human relationships. I, I'm, I'm fairly observant about this in Charlotte Chapel, much people surprised. You know, you see, see a young man or a young woman and suddenly they, they've got a different look about them. They look really, really glowing, you know. And you think, they've fallen in love with somebody. And then you see them together. Oh, I'm going to embarrass anybody here. You see them sitting together in the pews and they spend time together and uh, 
you don't have to take them. Look, I noticed you're going out with that young lady. I think it would be good if you sat with her in church and it would be rather nice if you took her out sometime, you know. You don't have to tell people that. They don't need a pastor's three line work to get them to do it. If they do, there's something wrong. They find great joy and fulfillment in one another. It's human love. But I have to tell you something. Our ultimate fulfillment will never lie in human relationships, most wonderful though they are. Our ultimate fulfillment, in which all other human loves find their fulfillment, is in God. We are made to know Him and love Him. We find our fulfillment in God. And many of us, sadly, can look back to that first experience of when we came to faith in Christ. And it was a wonderful occasion for many of us. And we were just kind of filled with joy. And we loved to spend time with God and with His people and in His Word. And we didn't need anybody to tell us to come to a prayer meeting. Because we wanted to. Our priorities changed. We rejoiced in God. And it is possible for that kind of love that kind of devotion to dwindle. In fact, it is inevitable unless it is constantly re... whatever the word is, animated, re-fired with the Spirit of God. And we need God's Spirit again and again. And when that happens, I'll tell you what the sign of it is. When that begins to happen, we find our joy and fulfilment in other... well, we look for our joy and fulfilment in other people and in other things. And you suddenly find someone who was always at the prayer meeting has got a hobby. Maybe a laudable hobby. Or they join a political party. It may be a laudable political party. I will not comment which ones are and which ones aren't. They're all laudable, really. Most of them, anyway. Maybe a relationship. But these things never satisfy. Do you remember what the prophet Jeremiah said? Very telling words. The Lord spoke to him about their priorities and he said, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, cisterns which cannot hold water. You know what that means? You try something else and you think, This is it, this is really going to satisfy me. Listen, I tell you, even if your football team wins the league, even if Bertie Volks retires and Scotland qualify for the World Cup. Okay, just think of anything that you think would be the greatest thing to possibly happen. When it happens, you will still be thirsty. Why? Because you need to find your joy in God. And maybe that describes your experience on this church anniversary. You're simply going through the motions of being a Christian. If truth were told, some of us actually are bored with being Christians. Or are we bored with our life within this church or your own church? And were it not for social appearances and pressure, you probably wouldn't show up at all. And some people aren't here for that very reason this morning. As I was coming in the bus, I was praying for some of them that they might be here this morning. God might bring them back. Because I know, but for the grace of God, I say to myself, if you weren't in the bathtub to preach every Sunday, would you be here every Sunday? Or you say, yes, it would. Maybe not. And some people eventually take that step and they either drift away gradually or some crisis occurs in their lives which sweeps them away like a tidal wave and they're gone. So what's the answer? Well, some people say, Christian leaders, when you start off as a pastor, take my word for it, you think the answer is to really berate the people and whip them into shape. Either encourage them by telling them all the nice things or make them feel guilty. 
Listen, it only lasts a short time, you know. Suddenly the prayer meeting leaps from 50 to 100, and then over the next few weeks, suddenly six months, can't be back to 50 again. What can we do? Well, the only thing we can do is seek God. Because only God can give life. Only God can give you a spiritual appetite if if you're not hungry for Him and want to know Him. And it is in recognising that that we come to God and we pray in desperation, Lord, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? And when that happens, it has a powerful effect on other people. Because like the young man you notice who's fallen in love and you think, gosh, what's happened to him? And you ask him, in fact, you don't need to ask him, he tells you. You know that girl so and so? Yeah, I'm going out there. Oh, and when God's people find their joy in him, people say, wow, what is it about you? You know, there's a joy in your life. And they might not call it like this. They just say, you know, something happened. If you won the lottery, it's stupid. You know, what, what, what's happened to you? And then you say, well, I'm a Christian. How am I joining God? Most wonderful thing imaginable. And then, of course, people are attracted. Some people are repelled. The Word of God says, you know, we, we carry with us the fragrance of Christ. In 2 Corinthians, it says to some people with a, with a stench of death. Because they don't like it. To other people with a fragrance of life. But we have an effect. Robert said, not too posh to wash. So that is the psalmist's prayer. And this anniversary, I challenge you to consider, with me as I thought it through, is this our greatest need? Now, I'm coming to the end. It's got a few more minutes and it's an anniversary, so I'll take some liberty. But look with me at the concluding verses of the psalm. What does God do in answer to the prayer? Well, the psalmist, aware of God's displeasure with his people, appeals to God to revive them and to act. He sees God's sovereignty. Verse 7. Show us your unfailing love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. And having prayed that, what does he do? Does he say, well, I'm just going to sit around and wait for God's Spirit to move? No, he doesn't. He suggests three things, and they're practical things that I'll leave with you this morning. And they're kind of based on a slogan. and you'll see what it is when we come to it. We have a responsibility to respond to what God is saying to us. Okay, here's the three things we need to do. First of all, we need to listen. That's what he says. Listen. I will listen to what the Lord God will say. Verse 8. The most important thing we can do is keep your ears open to what God is saying and doing. And you'll find it in His Word. You'll find it in the Scriptures. So if you stop reading the Bible, now's the time to start. If you stop coming to church, and this is just a kind of one-off, and you think, well, forget it. I'm not bothered, frankly, whether you... Well, if you come to Charlotte Chapel or not, it's not the main point. The main point is that you go to a place where you hear God's Word. Otherwise, if you're out of God's... hearing God's Word, how do you expect to be listening to what He's saying to you? God has spoken supremely and He's sent Jesus Christ. Read the Gospels. Join us for Mark's Gospel in the morning as we listen to what God has said to us. Yes, He says, the Lord promises peace to His people. They are still His people. There is saints, His holy ones, called to be different. So, here's the second thing. Guess this by now and be able to follow the rest of yourself. Listen. Stop. See what he says? I will listen to what the Lord God will, will say. He promises peace to his people, his saints. But, 
Let them not return to folly. That is, he says, stop doing stupid things. Some of us need to give up some of the things that we do that are stupid. Some of us need to stop relationships that are not helpful by helping us to grow as Christians. Because they lead us down the way of folly. Some of us need to be more careful about what we read and watch. Why? It's the way of folly. I don't know what it is for you. It may be different for me. But whatever it is, he says stop. The Bible has a word for it. It's the word repentance. It means a change of mind in which you turn to God but you cannot turn to God unless you turn from your sin. You've got to start facing in the right direction. So stop. And finally, look. The final verse of this psalm, anticipate God's salvation in which the beautiful words of verse 10 summarise it. It's a wonderful verse. I don't have time to go into it. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. The word love is a covenant word. God's chesed love to his people. And God has, God, what the psalmist looked for, what the psalmist anticipated, the psalmist looked, he said, Lord, will you be angry with us forever? And God said, no, I'm going to send my son who will bear my anger, my righteous wrath, my justifiable response to your sin. I'll not be angry forever. We worship at your feet where wrath and mercy meet. At the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. We look forward. He looked forward and we look back and see that God answered in the most wonderful way imaginable. And I say to you this morning, if you're not a Christian, here's where you need to come. This is where you start, where everybody starts. At the cross, where you turn from your sin. And what happens is, this is a wonderful thing. God forgives your sin like Robert said. He wipes it out, he makes you clean. He gives you the hope of eternal life. And he puts his spirit within you. See, I'd never be able to live up the Christian life. I'd love to be a Christian. I could never keep it up. Of course you couldn't. That's why God gives you his spirit. He gives you his Holy Spirit to enable you to be. Yeah, you're right. Holy. Different. Give you an appetite for him and his word and his presence. But I say this to many of us who are Christians. Some of us can look back. I can look back over. I like to think of over 40 years when I first came to the cross. became a Christian. Put my trust in Christ. But it's the place you need to come again. And again. Seeking his forgiveness. Receiving experience in the help of His Holy Spirit. See, I fear that many of us who would claim to be conservative evangelical Christians, if you know what that means, we've been so concerned to say to people who are, inverted commas, charismatic, that we do not believe that a second subsequent experience of the Holy Spirit is essential for all believers. with the result that we don't believe in any second subsequent experience of the Holy Spirit after conversion. But surely the greatest need for any Christian is to go on being filled with the Spirit. I believe in an essential work of God the Holy Spirit. In the normal Christian life, as you come to faith in Christ, you receive and are baptized in the Spirit, biblically. But I believe in going on being filled with the Spirit. And that may mean crisis experiences. Maybe this morning, in God's grace, is a crisis experience for you and God has brought you up short and you need to just come again to the cross and you need a fresh experience of the Holy Spirit. And together as a church, maybe this morning, that's what we need as a church. 
God might revive us again corporately. A fresh experience of God's spirit like the psalmist. So I ask you this morning, is that our greatest need? And I say with all honesty, it's my greatest.